You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Brilliant. So we are continuing our Rethinking the Bible series where we're um, looking at perhaps the Bible in, in a different way. We're being honest about the things about the Bible that perhaps have been tricky or haven't worked for us and looking at some of those really, really tough things, asking some some big questions of it. And as part of that, I'm really excited today that we've got um, a very special guest, Reverend Dr. Helen Painter. So Helen is um, the director of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence at Bristol Baptist College. Um, and that's she's, she'll talk more about that um, as part of this morning. But that's um, all about facilitating cutting edge research in the areas of biblical violence um, and, yeah, the kind of abuse of the Bible, I guess, in a a violent world. So, um, yeah, and it's it's I'm particularly excited that Helen's here because she's um, a former colleague of mine when I used to work at the college. So really excited that she's here to have that conversation. So perhaps we can just give her a round of applause as she comes up. Um, well, good morning, and maybe it'd be just good for you to start by telling us a bit more about you and perhaps your faith journey, yeah, as much as you want to say. So, hi, uh, really lovely to be with you all. Um, so, yeah, my name's Helen. Um, I am currently um, in the role that uh, Joe just described, and also I teach Old Testament at, uh, at, the, Bistol, at the Bristol Baptist College. Um, I started life, well, I was going to say I started life as a doctor, I didn't, I started life as a baby, but like most of us, but... <laughs> My first career was as a doctor, um, and I did work in medicine for about 16 years um, before I was called into the Baptist ministry. Um, and uh, and so I served in two churches um, in Bristol, two very different churches. One was a um, white work, one is a white working class uh, church, which I served in for six years, and then I moved to a, a very middle class church in Bristol, where I served as an interim uh, for a couple of years before my current role. Um, so that's a bit about, it's not really about my faith journey. I can talk a bit about, more about that yeah, if you Yeah, no, that would be great. It would be really interesting to know. Yep, go for it. Um, I, was, I was fortunate enough to be born into a Christian family, and we prayed together um, you know, from, from the cradle, really. And so I can never remember a moment when I didn't love and trust uh, God. And I do remember moments when I kind of, you know, made, made that more concrete in my mind. Um, I was baptised when I left... Uh, when I left home, because we went to a Presbyterian church uh, in my teens, and they don't they don't do it the same way that we do. Um, so as soon as I left home for university, I came to a Baptist col- a Baptist church and uh, was very very keen to get baptised. So I was baptised at the age of I think I was just nineteen um, in uh, in Cairns Road Baptist Church. Um, yeah, so I mean, oh, you know, there's there's ups and downs, aren't there? All the way, um, we went through a. A period when we were just married, when I was working back in the day, junior doctors used to work 100, 120 hours a week, um, and uh, that was that was quite hard, <laughs> and um, it's hard to kind of sustain the the the, 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 the sustain the disciplines of, of faith um, that kind of help us to stay engaged with God and we struggled a bit with the churches we were worshipping in in that time as well. So for six years actually after we were first married we, we kind of struggled on a bit and then um, then we went, uh, we moved house and we took the opportunity to go back to the church I'd been baptised in and where I'd worshipped as a student. Hadn't been through in the, that church for six years and walked in through the front door and the lady on the on the, at the welcome said hello Helen as if I had not been away and I thought oh I'm home and uh, and we were 
Lovely. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so from that to sort of, um, yeah, you're, and I know you've got a real love for the Bible and theology. So wh- where did that come from? How did you sort of get into that? And then how did that lead into sort of your focus on violence in the Old Testament? I think, well, it's two, two things that came together, really. One is that I, I, when I came to college to study to be a minister, I discovered that this was something that I wasn't just a hoop I wanted to jump through, but something that I really loved and was passionate about. I've, I've been passionate about the Bible for a long time, actually. Um, but it was great to be able to study it you know, really in depth. And I quickly realised that I wanted to go on from the masters that I'd kind of signed up for to go on to do a PhD, which I did. The, the topic or the reason I chose what I chose is I, I, I'm a specialist now in Old Testament narratives, so the stories of the Old Testament. And if you know the Old Testament, you'll know it's not all stories. We've got poems and we've got prophecy and we've got wisdom stuff and, and law and so on. But I love the narratives um, and learning to read the narratives well. And I think it's from my love of, probably started with my love of fiction, really, and my realization of how powerful story whether fictional or not story can be and so um, I constantly ask these questions of you know why is this story in my bible and what's it here for and what's it's what's the what's it intending to communicate to us so that's kind of where I you know where I have settled kind of academically as it were and that's how I got in there but in terms of the violence thing um Two moments, I suppose. Um, The first was when I had a phone call from our church youth worker. Um, And it was just, you know, out of the blue. And I don't know why she phoned me, because I hadn't done any or hadn't done much theological training at the time. So didn't really have any sort of specialist knowledge to bring. But she phoned me up and said, one of our young people has started reading the Old Testament seriously for the first time. And she's found some stories there that are making her hair stand on end and I'm really worried um, that she's going to lose her faith have you got anything I can say to her and I had nothing useful to say but that question I was I was ashamed of the fact I had nothing useful to say and that question then niggled away and that is one has been one of the great drivers for the work that I do the other one came much later um, and it was I was reading a book I was in London on a, a doing something or other, it doesn't really matter, but I was on my own and I'd gone to a restaurant and you know when you go to a restaurant on your own and it's a bit weird and I'd taken a book to read and I sat and I was reading this book and it was about the ways that these, some of the stories we might talk about in a minute, the story of the conquest of Canaan, about the ways that it had been used, um, it had been used in uh, the Rwandan genocide. It had been used in, I'm not, not going in chronological order, it had been used um, to justify the clearance of the Native Americans um, in, in North America and in other stories. And I sat there in this restaurant reading this and I, I'm not someone who cries easily and I just could not wait to get out of that restaurant and get home, or get back to my hotel. And I got back to my hotel and I just wept and wept that God's word had been so used to cause so much harm. So that was a real, a, another turning point for me really and that kind of accounts for the two sides of the work that I do, trying to understand biblical violence but also trying to look at the ways that it's used to cause, the Bible is used to cause harm and try and offer you know, better ways of reading it. Amazing. That's a really powerful story. Also, not the moment where you want to sit and weep when you're on your own in a restaurant. Absolutely. <laughs> it was a really nice meal, but I didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> oh. um, so, yeah, I, know, 
as leading on to my next question, and you know, and I, I think we've, you know, the questions that we've we've sort of shaped today, we are we are going there in terms of, of asking you, and, and for lots of us, maybe some of what we read in the Bible is is quite troubling, and particularly the Old Testament. And I think, um, you know, a lot of of what of what my conversations are with people around the Bible is, or you know, I don't know if you've ever like who's ever tried to read the Bible like from the beginning, like, and you start a Genesis and you think, you know, because you just read it like a book, you know, when. And uh, he's sort of in a genesis, oh, that's lovely, you know, God created the work, and there's two stories, but okay, that's fine. And then you just keep going, and then suddenly it just gets, like, really violent quite quickly. And my, my advice is always just don't read it from the beginning. Like, read a gospel, start there. But at the same time, we can't skip past that stuff, and, you know, we need to look at it, we need to understand it. So, yeah, I guess, that, you know, my first question in getting into the, these topics is just what, why is there just so much violence, particularly in the Old Testament? And that's a really big question. <laughs> um, I do know, I wish I had a pound for every time I've been asked that question, actually in those, in those terms, um, because I'd be a rich woman. Um, because one of the things we need to appreciate is that the violence that we encounter in Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, but not exclusively, and perhaps we'll talk about that later, um, it's not all doing the same thing. It's not all there for the same purpose. And so it's really important that we don't just lump it all together and say, kind of, all that violence in the Old Testament. So I, I view it as a bit like the problem, if you like, as being a bit like an onion, where you can peel some layers away, and, um, and they're different from one another. So I think the one of the things we encounter a lot um, is accounts of violent things that happen. Um, accounts of battles, accounts of murders, accounts of sexual violence. Um, the text is not endorsing those. God is not endorsing those. We're simply being given an account of the violent world that it was back then and it still is today. If you picked up a newspaper and it didn't tell you about the war in Ukraine, if you picked up a newspaper, so yesterday was International Day for, uh, for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, if you picked up a newspaper and it never spoke about violence against women, for example, I think you would feel that it was, it was airbrushing important things out, that it wasn't really being truthful in the way it was re reporting. And, and, but somehow we don't always bring that same expectation to this ancient text. And so I think that if we didn't read accounts of violence, especially violence against women actually, which is so often kind of swept under the carpet and silenced, if we didn't read those accounts, we would rightly be indignant. And so I think we should be Hear me well, we should be glad they're there. Not glad that they happened, of course, but glad that they mattered enough to be recorded. So that's the first layer of the onion, and that's the easiest layer of the onion. I think the next one is, um, prayer, is violent prayers, uh, particularly in the Psalms, but you also find them in the prophets. So, Lord, smite my enemies, sort of thing. Yep. Um, and we tend to leave those out <laughs> when we use them in churches. Um, but I think there's a lot we could say about those. So we could talk about the value of catharsis. You know what I mean by catharsis? The value of being able to actually say anything to God. 
and be real and honest with God and not trying to kind of, you know, make ourselves squeaky clean before we dare to approach God. I think that's something you're really good at here, actually. I was noticing the come-as-you-are banners. And I've been in churches where I've been told, you know, leave your problems at the door. It's like, I don't want to leave my problems at the door. I want to bring them in and be honest about them before God. And they won't magically go away, probably, but I will get a fresh perspective on them. And I have wrestled with them in the presence of God and with his people. So I think that these violent psalms allow us... um, permission to be honest with God in that way. Something else I would say, and I think sometimes we are a little bit critical of those, you know, primitive ancient writers who kind of called down smiting upon their enemies, and I would never do anything like this. I preached a sermon recently um, on one of those texts, and I kind of started it by saying, oh, you know, primitive so-and-so, they, you know, they, they, um, you know, we wouldn't do that sort of thing these days, would we? And then I told three stories just from the newspaper in the last few weeks, I told a story about a 93-year-old woman who was um, assaulted by a Russian, a Ukrainian woman who was assaulted by a, actually by a Ukrainian militiaman. And I said, I wonder if she call, wants to call down violence against him, and would we blame her if she does? And I told two kind of similar stories. So I think before we come down too heavily in judgment against those who pray that sort of prayer, I think we need to remember that, for some of us at least, I don't presume to know anyone's story here, but for some of us at least, we we haven't stood in that place where we have that primal urge to pray those prayers. And I think the final thing I'll say, I could say more, but I think the final thing I'll say about this one, am I right? Am I going on too long? Okay. Um, Is that the New Testament teaches us to reframe our enemies as spiritual enemies rather than physical ones. So you may know in Ephesians 6, Paul says, our, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Um, and elsewhere, Paul says, um, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So if we think about this category of enemies in the way that the New Testament invites us to think about enemies, then we're not thinking about individual people. We're thinking much more about systems and structures and spiritual forces and those less tangible evils, which are very, very real, but not people. So if I were to list the enemies of God, I would say things like cancer and dementia and war and, you know, we could name a whole load of other things and death. And all of the, if we categorise all of those and think about those as the enemies of God, then I am totally up for praying, Lord, smite my enemies. Yeah? Because actually what I'm praying for is I'm praying for an end to cancer and I'm praying for an end to dementia and I'm praying for an end to road traffic accidents and genocide and war and rape and death. And actually I'm praying for the return of the Lord Jesus. So that's how I would reframe those psalms that's something i'd say so that's the second layer of the onion am i all right to keep going no, no you keep going this is a okay. i want to get to the third layer. i can't just <laughs> cut you off there like what's the center of the onion yeah so the fourth layer the third layer can't count is judgment where god acts directly in judgment and this is harder because I, we don't like that i think we don't like the idea that god might strike someone down and so i haven't got such an easy easy answer I haven't got you know I I would need to talk for longer um, but what I want to say is this we are really 
uncomfortable as a we as a UK church, as a Western church, we are really uncomfortable with the idea of judgment. And it's not something we like to talk about very much, I think, by and large. But let me tell you a story. Um, and this is a, so I don't know if you've heard of IJM. So IJM, International Justice Mission, they are an amazing organization that, um, that works basically on the premise that whatever else you do in a society, you can you know, have microloans, you can improve healthcare, you can improve infrastructure, you can do all these things. If you do not have just laws and enforce them, nothing else matters. So that's their premise. And so they work to cooperate with local law enforcement agencies all over the world to help, for example, bring people out of slavery. Um, so they tell a story, um, IJM, this is one of a thousand that they could choose, I'm sure, of a woman called Mariama who was a slave in a brick factory in one of the, um, in, in, let's just say in the Indian subcontinent, I don't want to particularly name a particular country. She was a slave in a brick factory there. Uh, she and others. And by day, for, I don't know, 12, 14 hours a day, she worked hard in the brick factory. And by night, the um, owner and his uh, son assaulted her. And this happened day after day after day after day. And eventually, IJM managed to get her and the others with her out. And then they tried to bring this man and his son to justice. And they made, I think it was like 16 trips to court and tried to get the police involved, and the police couldn't take a statement because someone had stolen the wheels off their van, and, you know, just a hundred ludicrous and, uh, you know, spurious blocks were put in their way. And they, they went to court multiple times to try and bring justice against this man. And after, I think it was 16 visits to court, it was thrown out. And they finished this story by saying, yeah, we got Mariama out and those who were with her, but that man and his son are free to go and do it again. Now, that story, I think, demonstrates to us why we need justice, why we need judgment. Judgment is good news because it means an end to all that dreadful, dreadful stuff that we read in our newspapers, like Mariama, like Ukraine, and, and everything else. And we thank God that he sent a saviour, that we can stand in the judgment. But we need judgment to bring an end to all of that. We don't want, I think, a God who is indifferent, like perhaps the judicial system that failed Mariama, or one that just is ineffectual. We don't want a God like that, I think. I think we want a God who says, enough. Enough. So that's the third. Yeah. How, how many are there? There's four. You're great. No, no. Go, no that's fine. That's fine. Well, if you were like 26. 156. I, yeah. <laughs> wow, I went much lower. <laughs> yeah, no, go for it. Um, and then the fourth, which is the hardest of all, is where God uh, commands violence. Um, and that's mainly, not exclusively, but mainly in the book of Joshua, in the conquest of the land of Canaan. And that is the hardest to answer. And I continue... I have things I can say about it, and I'll perhaps see how far you want me to go with that. Um, there are things we can say, there are ways we can understand it, but they do not, in my mind, add up to a full answer. And there are, I have outstanding questions that I will be asking God when I meet him face to face. Um, but I think we need to be, 
Well, it's interesting. I did a, a, a touring lecture around the UK a few years ago, kind of addressing this question, well, kind of tangentially addressing this question of the conquest and the difficulties that we have in reading it. And I had three responses, by and large, people who came and spoke to me afterwards. There was a group of people who came and said, um, I don't know why you're worrying about this. God said it, so that's fine. I'm like, okay. I don't want to put a stumbling block in somebody's path. If, if that's how you view it, I'm not here to cause problems for you. That's go in peace, you know. Then there was another portion of people who came and said, I don't know why you're worrying about this. We just, just you know, cut these out of our Bible. And my response to that is I can't do that in all honesty because I believe that the Bible is God's word and it is all given for a purpose. And so some people feel comfortable with doing that. I don't. But then there was a middle group, if you like, who came and said, thank you for giving us permission to wrestle with this. Thank you for saying this is problematic and for saying it's all right to ask God hard questions. And so that's where I position myself. We remember the story of Jacob. Um, If you remember the story of Jacob, he's on his way back into the promised land after he's been in kind of self-imposed exile. And he meets a man, turns out, he meets God, but he doesn't know that really to begin with. And he meets a man and they wrestle and they wrestle all night. And in the end, it kind of dawns on him who he's wrestling with. And he grabs hold of him and he says, I will not let go of you until you bless me. I think that's a really helpful model for our approach to these difficult texts. To be honest about the fact that they're difficult to be willing to ask God the really bold questions like the psalmists do, Um, to say to God, I'm not going to let go of you or this text until I have found the blessing in it. And final thing before I hand back to you, sorry, (laughs) is that um, I think it's really interesting that, so Jacob gets renamed at that encounter. He gets renamed Israel. And Israel means the one who wrestles with God. And the nation that he is the forefather of could have been called Abraham, which would seem to me logically to be a good name for that nation. It's not called Abraham. Could have been called Jacob, which was his given name. And it's not called Jacob most of the time. It was called Israel. That name which was given to that man for wrestling is the name that the, the, the people of God take on. Israel is, are the people who wrestle with God in the Old Testament. We read that through and through. Um, and I think that, that is, we need to take that as encouragement, that it is fine to ask these hard questions and wrestle honestly with them, always seeking the blessing. Cool. Thank you. Um, and I suppose, you, I think you probably already covered slightly in terms of just the you know aligning the God of love that perhaps we know and experience with some of the violence in the Old Testament. So perhaps, um, unless there's anything else you want to say on that kind of link to that, that's not how we see Jesus. You know, I think you know you could sort of say there's a there's a distinction in the kind of non-violent path of Jesus compared to the sort of you know that particularly layers four and five. <laughs> um, so yeah, what how do you kind of work that out? Well, I think we. We need to be honest about the fact that Jesus speaks about violence as well. Um, In fact, Jesus speaks more about violence than we often kind of admit, I think. The violence Jesus speaks about, though, is what we call eschatological violence, end-time violence. The violence that is, we might or might not think of as a metaphor, but it's about final judgment. So Jesus is absolutely 
you know, proclaims that there is going to be a final judgment. And for the reasons that I've told you, I think that's good news. Um, what Jesus also does, though, is absolutely promote a way of peace in this in-between time. So, violent, so you know, the Old Testament says, vengeance is mine, and that's, you know, that's the sort of idea that Jesus adopts, if you like, is, you know, God will, God will bring an end to all the terrible, terrible atrocities of this world. I say bring it on and amen. And Jesus is, is, speaks about that and uses violent language for that. But while we wait for that, that is not ours to take. That is not our action to take. And in this meantime, however long it is, our way should be the way of peace. Okay. And I'm, I've, I'm, I'm being naughty and I'm going to chuck this question in there. But... Um, and I, I think you'll have an understanding of this having having done some of the kind of work you have in pastoral settings and church communities. But that sense of sort of justice, certainly I think we can all relate to like wanting there to be justice when there are, there's wrongdoing. And But understanding sometimes that some of the perpetrators of injustice themselves have been victims of, of injustice. And so while there's that sense of, you know, understanding the need for judgment and wanting that and wanting, you know, um, it's quite complex, isn't it, in terms of then how perpetrators are often victims and there's that kind of ongoing cycle and you know why doesn't God seem to work in that restorative kind of justice sense in the Old Testament and do you think that's more like what will happen I don't know that's a massive question itself but <laughs> um, yeah just maybe that sense of like the different types of justice almost maybe that's you know a slightly smaller question to answer and like yeah it seems like God's quite up for the retributive sort of method rather than the, the restorative one <laughs> that's a huge there's a book in that um <laughs> There you go. Um, Next one. I, I think I think you're absolutely. I absolutely agree that um, you know to, to ha- position ourselves in terms of binaries of right and wrong, good and bad, um, are really unhelpful. They're unhelpful on both sides of that divide. In terms of the person we other, the person that we look at and say that person's evil. Yeah, so often you know even just thinking about Ukraine. So I keep going back to it. It's obviously such a relevant question right now. But so many of those Russian soldiers have been um, coerced. They didn't know that often that they were going to war. You know, so it's it's not clear. Um, it's not easy. Um, and in fact, that story I mentioned earlier, that woman who was assaulted, she was assaulted by a, a Ukrainian militiaman. So yeah, these, these binaries of good and bad are, are, are just not that easy. But of course, on the, on the good side, on you know, our side, because we're always on the good side, aren't we? Um, <laughs> um, you know, how, how untrue that is. And, you know, you, you probably say to me or think to yourself, well, I've never done anything violent. I've never you know, stabbed anybody, you know, I've never killed anyone, I've never, but actually, you know, this is something that Jesus shows is that the seeds of violence are in all of us, um, and the seeds of, of, of envy, the seeds of um, anger, all these things that, that cause violence, that we, we carry those within ourselves, each one of us, and I think the the fundamental problem of violence is disordered desire, and I think we see that right back in Genesis 3, um, it's disordered desire. It's desiring things other than God. It's desiring what our neighbour has and, and wanting, therefore, to be violent in order to acquire it. So, yes, so these binaries just aren't helpful. Um, and we need to be much more wise in the way that we think about them. I think that's only a little bit of your question. But yeah, no, no, that's, that's still a good 
helpful response. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and I'm, I'm mindful of time, and I, I know that there's probably lots of questions that, that people have. Um, so we'll break uh, in a few minutes. I think maybe I might get you to talk about the centre that you run a bit later, um, and then you could perhaps tell us about the books and things as well. So I think if we have sort of a five-minute break, and the way that we do things is you'll see on the, the tables... Okay, we're going to make a start with part two. So we've got some some great questions. So thank you, uh, thank you so much for for those. If you if you have kind of written one but you just forgot to kind of bring it up, you still got time. So just yeah, run it up now if you can, and yeah, we'll um, we'll get into part two. Uh, Brill. So Helen, first question. Okay, is uh, what do we think about the god in Amos who says the northern kingdom should be wiped out? <laughs> Great question. Um, so Amos, for those who don't know, Amos is one of the prophets and he's a prophet from the southern kingdom into the northern kingdom. Um, I would say, first of all, I, th I don't think it's quite fair to say he says the northern kingdom should be wiped out. I think he's saying you're going to be, you're going to be deported, you're going to be conquered um, which isn't quite the same so but I think two key things without address without taking ages on this question the first is that if you read Deuteronomy I think it's 28 um, then you read the terms of the covenant that God and his people made with one another and the terms of the covenant were if you are faithful to me then I will bless the socks off you that's a slight paraphrase but it's basically that um, but if you are not faithful to me then actually all the list of all the blessings that are in the first half of the chapter are kind of reversed um, and ultimately the land will vomit you out you will lose the land um, and actually, that does help when we think about the conquest of Canaan, because one of the things is that, that God's people don't get given that land permanently. It's if you if you're unfaithful, you, you'll be vomited out of the land, just as the people who, who who you displaced were vomited out of the land. So that's the first thing to say: is we need to hold all of this in the context of that covenant agreement which was made. But the other thing about Amos in particular is that Amos has a absolutely massive heart for social justice. Um, I mean, some of the things he talks about in the first chapter or two, he speaks about people trafficking. It's, it's got a very modern feel, the book of Amos. He speaks about people trafficking. He speaks about war crimes. A bit later on, he speaks about domestic abuse. Um, and he speaks about um, abuse of the poor. Um, and he rages with God's rage. He rages against these injustices. Um, so, you know, I, I say... I think Amos is, a, is, is one of the good guys, actually. You know, he's, he is indignant for the right things. And he warns the people that unless they turn their, uh, change their ways, the land will vomit them out. And that's what happens to them. Okay. Um, and the next question is, silence is violence. So do you think this is a dress? So the church has been silent on violence. So thinking particularly about the um, Q Club attack. Um, but other other examples and I, think I was fair to say. <laughs> I was just down the road from well in the next city over when that happened actually Gosh. Um, they were flying all the flags at half mast in Denver last week um, absolutely silence is violence and this is something that I have spoken on and written on um, in in a whole range of ways and I think you know what I said a few minutes ago about we should be encouraged to read these stories in our Bibles. This, this is part of this same idea, really, is that, um, that the silencing 
of people who experience abuse. Let me call them victims. I know it's a really problematic term, but I just need a word, so forgive me. But the silencing of victims um, is, is a huge problem, and that's something that scripture actually stands against and, and gives voice to people. Um, it gives voice by telling their stories. It gives voice sometimes by recording their, their, their own protest. Um, and, it, it, and, and it gives voice by... by giving articulation to the rage and that's kind of what I was saying about the Psalms so absolutely and my work um, on the at the center of the study of Bible and violence my work on the side of the weaponization of scripture is is very much um, along these lines of the things that churches do not speak up about the people that are silenced in churches and this of course is a generalization and not every church is the same but I've done quite a lot of work around domestic abuse and you know, a, a, for example, a woman makes an, an accusation against her husband who's the minister or an elder or a powerful donor in the church. And so often she is silenced. And that happens because sometimes because of the power of vested interest and, well, it would affect our mission to the world, wouldn't it, sort of thing, if this became public. Sometimes it's about um, the misapplication of theology, the misapplication of, of scripture um, around, around divorce, around submission, a whole load of stuff that, that works to silence people who are experiencing abuse. So absolutely, 100% agree, we need to be um, bold about calling out abuse, violence, and injustice, whether it's out there or whether it's in here. Okay, thanks. Uh, what advice can you give to someone who struggles to reconcile the God of the Old and New Testaments? Do they reflect our changing understanding of God? And this is a, a great question, and it's a really big one. I would say, um, one of the I won't do it now, but one of the things that I sometimes do when I'm asked this question is I read some, some texts and I say, is this old or new? And of course, what I do is I choose all the, not I choose a sample of, of places from the Old Testament that speak of God's love and His mercy and His compassion, and I speak, choose a sample from the New Testament that speak of God's anger and His rage and His judgment. And but it's to demonstrate the fact that actually these two books are not different in their theology of God and in the description of the character of God. Um, the greatest description we see of the character of God. Um, prior to encountering Jesus, is on Mount Sinai, where God says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, um, forgiving mercy to the umpteenth generation, slight paraphrase, but basically that, and, and, and judging to the fourth generation. But we see that you've got this mercy far exceeds judgment. And this is what we see in the Old Testament um, it's not without its problems, and I acknowledge that, and I hope I've been really honest about that, but we see a God of compassion and patience in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we see a God also who is not going to close his eyes to evil. So I think we can put too much distinction between the Testaments. Um, there's so much more we could say about that, and I think I'm going to have to just leave it there. Yeah. Um, okay, and then the, these couple have just, just come in, <laughs> hot off the press. Um, how does the way we view the Bible affect how we see violence recorded in the Bible? So do we get a biased view from who is writing? That's a great question. And that's the sort of question that I wrestle with in my master's uh, hermeneutics class, which is basically interpretation of the Bible class. Um, so it's not something I'm going to be able to answer quickly and easily. We need to understand, uh, I'm very 
very big on saying to my students, every translation is an interpretation and every reading is an interpretation. Um, and there is no perfect interpretation. And one of the things we, we will grow, we will grow rather, if we learn to listen to other people's interpretations as well. Um, so I read as a, a white middle-class woman with children, heterosexual and so on. I will read differently from somebody who doesn't share all of those life experiences. And we will learn from one another if we, if we read together. So that's um, an important thing to say. I think we also need to try and learn to read scripture on its own terms while understanding that we always bring ourselves to it. Try and read it um, with the mind of the person it was written for, as it were, because actually it wasn't primarily written for, for, for you and me. Um, I mean, in, in God's providence, it was intended for us, but actually in this each bit of it was written for a particular purpose. And if we try and learn what sort of scripture we read, what sort of writings we're reading, it's called the re reading for the genre, think about who it's aimed for. We will read it better. We will understand it better. And there's some really... For those who want to think more about that, and can I make a book recommendation? Please do. So there's a book by Gordon Fee called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Gordon Fee and someone called, I think it's Douglas Stewart. Um, but How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And it's, it's, it's transformational, actually. It's very easy to read and it can transform um, you, us in terms of our engagement with Scripture. So I would recommend that. Brilliant. That sounds good. Thank you. Um, okay, and then <laughs> this this is a big one. We'll, 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 we'll maybe end on this, and then I want to just go on to talk a bit about your some of more of your work. Uh, but so, when it comes to the final judgment, how do you reconcile the concepts of a loving, forgiving God with the idea of possible eternal uh, separation and condemnation? Thank you, and that's a really big one. Um, so, when I said what I said about judgment, and I don't backtrack on that at all but what I said about judgment doesn't necessarily entail um, doesn't necessarily entail final uh, eternal conscious punishment that's for sure um, and yeah so I think there were a lot of questions still unanswered I think what I know and what I hold to is that evil will be destroyed and I read the book of Revelation and I read you know the the dragon and the beast and these are representative of all that is evil um, the dragon and the beast being cast into the fire. And that's representation of everything that is wrong and broken and so evil in our world coming to an end. What happens to people is another question, a, 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 a diff, slightly different question. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not going to comment in, in, at length about that, except to say that it's, I, don't, I don't believe that God's final judgment necessarily entails eternal conscious punishment. That's not how I read scripture. Um, I think I might leave that there. But what I want to say then is that what we are talking about more positively is a new heavens and a new earth, which is the promise. So, you know, we, we don't get saved to go into heaven and float around and disembodied on a cloud. That's, that's not a Christian view of, 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 what the, of, of what will be happening after the final judgment. And we are looking at a new heavens and a new earth where we get to live... Um, the, the, the lives we always should have had to live. We get to, to, to live without that constant, you know, wonky wheel that we have in ourselves that leads us into, you know, some, one of the great theologians spoke about us being curved in upon ourselves. 
You know, this is our, our natural bent is we are curved in upon ourselves and fundamentally selfish in, in, in the ways our minds work. We won't have that anymore. That'll be gone. But bigger than that, you know, there won't, this is a world that will be without war and without genocide and without cancer and dementia and, and all, these t- all these evils, all these human evils and all these natural evils. We're talking about a world without these. Um, I can barely begin to imagine what it'll be like, but this is the promise. This is the the sure and certain hope of Scripture. And this is what God is bending the arc of history towards. And this is why what will happen when he sends his son again. Thank you. That's a nice, that's a nice, nice note to end on. Um, and actually, for anybody that just wants to, to dig into that a little bit more, we did, um, I can't remember when it was, was it last year? We did a little mini series on God's judgment and hell. Um, yeah, I wasn't there at that planning meeting, so I got the talk on hell. So uh, <laughs> if you want to, <laughs> yeah, I actually loved it. Um, I read too many books. It was good fun. So yeah, if you want to yeah, explore that a little bit more, um, all those talks are available on our, on our SoundCloud page. Um, Brill, so just before before we let you go, Helen, it'd be great. I think I'd love to hear more about the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence and, you know, what, what the purpose of that is, what you aim to achieve, and then maybe give us some book recommendations. I know you've written a book that you want to talk about, so yeah, go for it. Thank you. So the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence is, um, I, I think of it as being like a, a two-by-two matrix, our, our vision. Um, at the top, we have two different things. Um, we have the interpretation of biblical violence and we have um, the weaponization of scripture and the top side is the academic research into that area so we you know we've got master students got phd students we're doing academic work in in those two areas all the time but we are i, I never wanted us and we are not um just an academic um think tank we we want what we do to matter for the church and for the world and so the second, the bottom half of that grid, then, if you like, is in those two areas: how we understand the violence of Scripture, and how we resist the abuse of Scripture to harm others. Is trying to produce resources for the church in a whole range of ways, from you know me coming and doing things like this to um, you know podcasts and blogs and Bible studies and um, books and so on. So, if you're interested in any of that, have a look on our website. Um, and, uh, and and you'll find a kind of range of resources. But can I just mention a couple that might be relevant? Yeah, and we'll make sure that um, the link to the website goes out in next week's community news as well. Thank you. So if you are interested in grappling with the particular questions we've been talking about today, then there are lots of good books out there, and I'm very happy to make some recommendations for more advanced reading, but the kind of beginner reading, if you like, if you're not a theologian, um, is, well, there are others, of course, but the one that I've written is called God of Violence Yesterday, God of Love Today, with a question mark, and I'm never going to write a book with a question mark in the title again. It was a very bad mistake. Um, but anyway, that's, uh, that's that book. I have got a couple here. Um, if people if people wanted them today, um, but this is it is genuinely for people who have you know who are starting kind of from scratch as it were, and it it will not answer all your questions, but it will might help. That's the aim. Um, I for those who want to think a little bit harder about sexual violence in the Bible, I've written this book, and this is a bit more. I don't think it's advanced, but it's a bit more academic. Um, And Judges 19 is the the most egregious, the most dreadful case of sexual violence in the Bible. And I've written a little book that explores that and explores the silencing question that we talked about earlier, actually. Um, That's not for sale, but I just brought it to show you. 
It's called, so it's called Telling Terror in Judges 19. And then the other thing I wanted to mention on the side of the weaponization of scripture, and I touched on this earlier, is uh, domestic abuse. So I've done quite a lot of work around domestic abuse and the ways that scripture gets drawn into that narrative in the, in the home and sometimes in the church. And so I've written a book aimed really um, and primarily at people experiencing abuse, but obviously Others are, you know, I hope it's helpful for those who want to support them as well, called The Bible Doesn't Tell Me So, Why You Don't Have to Submit to Domestic Abuse and Coercive Control. That was written two years ago, and brand new and hot off the press, we now have a video study, um, a series of six videos aimed for church small groups who want to work through this as well, called The Bible Doesn't Tell Us So. Brilliant. They all sound amazing. Thank you. And I, I presume the details of those are on the website. Are yes. They? Great. Yes. So if we just put the link to the website, you can, yeah, yeah, go and find those there. So brilliant. Was there anything that you were like, I really wanted to say that or, yeah, anything key that we've missed before? We, uh, no, I mean, up? of course, there's so much more we could say. But God is <laughs> yeah. good. God is good. Um, and when we don't see that in scripture, we need to just hold on to him and know that he is good. The fullest revelation of God is found in Jesus Christ on the cross, God crucified, God absorbing the violence of the world. God is good. He is bending the arc of history towards ultimate good. And even when we wrestle with these difficult passages, let's not lose hold of the goodness of God. Yeah, great. I'm really happy to leave it there. Helen, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating. And there's lots, I think, like we always say, the Sundays are the start of something, they're the beginning of something. And so I think there's, you know, books to read, there's questions to, to carry on asking. And conversations to, to Karen having between ourselves but yeah um, thank you so much for, for coming and joining us and braving the Christmas market madness to get here so let's um, let's give Helen another round of applause <laughs>